Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. Created by Notation Capital, sponsored by Sapphire Ventures. You can find us online at notationcapital.com or back us on AngelList. Our guest for this episode is Michael Kim of Sandana Capital. You can find him on Twitter at MKRocks and at Sandana Capital. All right, so we're here with Michael Kim. He's a managing partner and founder of Sandana Capital, which is one of the earliest and most active micro VC fund-to-fund investors. Uh, he's an investor in funds like Freestyle, Lair, Softech, K9, Founder Collective, a bunch of others. And uh, previously, he was a partner at Rustin Canyon Partners, and before that, uh, Morgan Stanley. So right. um, he's based here out on the West Coast. We're traveling this week. And uh, really excited to have you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, to start, I guess, towards the beginning, it'd be great to understand a little bit about the origins of Sandana Capital. Sure. And, um, and how that came to be. You were one of the earliest, I guess, dedicated micro VC fund to funds. I think um, we're the only pure play one still. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about how Sandana started. Sure. So I came out to San Francisco in 1997 and I was with Morgan Stanley. I was in the tech M&A group. We were officed here in, in San Francisco for a little bit and then mostly at Sand Hill Road. So, you know, saw the first internet bubble, um, worked with a lot of companies, um, including, you know, obviously startups and their venture capitalists. Um, and then in 1999, I had this opportunity to join Rustic Canyon which was a new fund being formed and it was funded by a large family office in LA. And so, you know, as a second year associate to be able to join a big venture firm as a full partner, it was a pretty exciting opportunity. So I did that for about nine years. We raised that was, that was a, uh, a venture firm yes. directly investing in startups. Yes, it was. It actually had the ability to do small buyouts. So, and also pipe steel. So it was sort of a multi-stage private kind of um, investing effort. It was an alternative investment platform for this family office. And that first fund was $500 million. So it was, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty substantial from the get go. Based here in the Bay Area. Actually based in Los Angeles. So I was, I was one of two partners here in, in, in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, it did okay, not great, um, you know, but it was a great place to learn, certainly. And, and how old were you when you were a partner there? Uh, I think I was 20, 29 wow. when I started, maybe 30. So it was yeah. pretty early on. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I just finished up two and a half years at, at Morgan Stanley's before I started that. So, you know, it was still, it was still pretty early in my professional career. Um, now, the, the transition to being on the LP side of the table actually started when I was appointed to the board of San Francisco's Public Pension Fund which right now is about a $20 billion public pension fund. Um, you know, it's managed by uh, a professional staff of about 20. Um, I was one of seven board members. The mayor at the time, Gavin Newsom, appointed me to a five-year term. So from 2004 to 2009, I was doing that as a volunteer, but served right. as the chairman of investment committee. At one point, I was the president of the board. And it was really the first time I got an opportunity to see um, Number one, being on the LP side of the table where we were looking at different uh, fund managers and also across the entire asset allocation spectrum. So whether it was public equities, fixed income, real estate, right. and of course, alternative investments. And this all was an, it, this is the main fund that's investing on behalf of the San city. Francisco residents. It's specifically to benefit the um, employees of San right. Francisco's city government. Wow. Okay. And, you know, so um, it is actually one of the best public pension funds out there. Um, I think before 2008 hit, it was 112% funded, meaning, you know, the assets covered 112% of the liabilities. I think in 08, it kind of dropped down to about low 90s, but it's about 100% funded. And, yeah. you know, when you hear about San Diego or Chicago or Illinois public pension funds being 30% funded, 
you know, that sort of sets the context. Right. And, you know, specifically, um, San Francisco had been in, in alternatives, private equity and venture from the mid 80s. And so it had a very strong portfolio. And so that was, when you say alternatives, mainly hedge funds, private equity. No hedge funds at the time, but public equity or private equity, so yeah. buyout shops, yeah. as well as venture. And, you know, obviously being in the Bay Area, the venture portfolio was relatively strong compared to most public pension funds. And so were you, is that, is that when you kind of first began to navigate the venture ecosystem as an LP? Yes. So, um, you know, I turned 40 in 2008 and I decided that I wanted to have my own firm. And I, you know, having Fine. spent that, well, largely because I wanted to be more of an entrepreneur. I wanted to do things my way. Um, you know, obviously it's, it, was, it was taking a huge risk to, to launch something, you know, brand new. Um, but I actually specifically wanted to be on the LP side of the table because thinking about how do you generate, you know, um, returns above what the market expects, you know, the alpha, how to generate alpha, I thought was a very interesting intellectual problem. And, you know, at the same time, I think, um, I really, I, you know, there are two major disruptions going on in venture and no one was dealing with it. And the first one being the best firms like the Sequoia, Axel, Benchmark, Greylocks of the world were substantially larger, 500 to a billion dollar funds. And at the same time, the other major disruption was it was substantially cheaper to start a company. Um, right. And so the capital needs initially aren't aren't, uh, you know, the, the historical and traditional five on five, which is what, you know. Uh, the Series A firms were doing. You know, they would put two and a half each, get 25% of the company, and then sort of be off to the races. But if you don't need to buy servers and you don't need to pay for software licenses, you could start off um, a company with almost an order of magnitude less capital than you than that five million. You could start a company for 500. Right. And when when do you think you first started thinking through that or noticing that, and and how? I mean, is it because you spent time as a as a VC? Would you have not noticed that otherwise? I think, yeah, you know, I, I I think so. Because at the time, you know, I knew what Jeff Clavier was doing. We saw what First Round was doing. Union Square and Foundry were out there. So those, you know, those firms, um, and then Jeff as a super angel, were sort of the higher profile, early stage investing that, you know, was actually in contrast to what, say, a Sequoia would do in terms of their, their traditional investment um, path. Did you work with some of the, you know, larger, more established firms while you were at the San Francisco venture fund? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. They, they, their venture returns have been extremely strong, and um, you know, again, I think it's because they've been there for they've been in the in the asset category since you know the 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 mid eighties. So, so I guess this is what two thousand eight, two thousand nine, right. maybe around right. then. Some of these new firms are starting to pop up, like USV, and you said, um, uh, uh, Clavier was starting to be best quite actively as an angel. Um, tell us about you know um, where did you first begin to think through like these are the folks that I need to work with. And, and, right. and how, and how the hell were you going to do that? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned Union Square and Foundry and, and then Jeff, Jeff Clavier is an angel, a super angel, but you know, the, the pioneering seed funds, I think are, you know, Mike Maples at Floodgate, Michael Deering at, at Harrison Metal and, um, um, uh, Steve Anderson at Baseline. And those guys were sort of institutionalizing around this 2007, 2008 time period, maybe 2009. And, you know, by the time I left Rusted Canyon, which was at the end of 2009, I, you know, had this investment thesis that number one, smaller funds are outperforming, that there's this gap in the funding market where the, the top tier VCs were too big to deal with, you know, these small rounds, and there weren't that many people doing it. So I think when I started Sendana, um, there were probably 10 to 15 institutional, institutionalized seed funds um, now, obviously, today, there's probably, what, 250 right. to 300 just in the U.S. alone. But back then, it was still very early. And, you know, so that was the opportunity. But really, you know, if you look at it from the LP side, 
not many institutional LPs were actually investing in these kind of things. You know, the pioneers on the LP side are like groups like Notre Dame or like a fund of funds like Horsley Bridge. They were in those funds very early, very, very early on. But, you know, the average, say, public pension fund, even today, aren't in seed funds because, number one, I don't think they understand venture that well. And number two... Um, you know, you have this dynamic in the LP world. It's almost like you don't get fired for buying IBM. So there's a lot of, um, it's a very low risk tolerance kind of business. And, um, you know, I, I think that's kind of the world where you can actually come in and disrupt. And that's why I thought what Sendana was offering would be very interesting. Now, right. obviously, it was interesting as a very small handful of my current LPs. I got 99% of, uh, you know, the typical response I get from a, uh, an LP was no way. You're, we're right. not funding you. It's alternative. It's illiquid. You're a single GP and you're a fund of funds. So, you know, right. if you think about that Venn diagram, the, the, the opportunity set was super small in terms of which LPs I could go after and that this story would resonate. Right. So where, where, where did you start when you were first? So, yeah. I mean, the thesis, as far as I understand it was, you know, there's these there's these few newish small micro VC funds like Michael Deering at Harrison Metal and Steve Anderson at Baseline, and your belief was that given the capital gap, there could be call it you know rather than three of those funds, there could be ten or twenty or thirty, and that uh, and that you could raise some amount of capital to help fund those or get those going. Right. Um, so where where did you where did you start? Well, so I I, I sort of basically fine tuned the idea throughout 2010. I was introduced to a family. Why, why did you know why didn't why didn't you go do it yourself? You thought as a VC, having been a VC, you saw there's these three other new funds. Like why wouldn't you just go start one yourself? Right. Well, part of the reason for that is that I thought that at, at the very early stage you had to have a very important skill set, which is, you know, operating experience or technolo- technological uh, experience. So, you know, I had not run any companies or, uh, you know, lines of businesses. I, I was not a technologist. So I didn't think I had the right skill set or background to do it. Um, but do all, do all VCs, you think, need, all the best VCs need operational experience? Because that seems to be a hotly contested Well, the answer is no, because, you know, you look at someone like Fred Wilson at Union Square or Mike Moritz, who was an ex-journalist at Sequoia, you know, or or Bill Gurley, who was an equity research analyst. You know, I don't think it's dispositive that you need that experience, but it makes it easier from a fundraising perspective. And I didn't have that. So um, and also coming straight out of that San Francisco public pension fund experience, I thought, it would be kind of neat to be on the LP side of things, pick a, a, a set of managers that I thought would generate significant alpha and then go execute on them. Did you imagine you would get access to some of these funds that you had already identified or that it would be primarily more emerging managers who were going to operate in the same space that you had access to or could identify or, or that you had heard about that the, they were starting new things. Yeah. I mean, at, at the high level, I would say that um, being a pure play fund of funds focused on only on seed venture firms um, is akin to, you know, what I think uh, it would be advantageous right now for a new seed fund manager, which is to be thematic. And if you're thematic, that you, you, you know, and if you can establish yourself in the marketplace, you'll get, you'll get to see most everything. Cause you know, like Kirsten Green at, at, at Forerunner, you know, she's digital commerce. And, you know, I think most entrepreneurs starting a, a digital commerce company knows that they should be talking to her. And I think, um, it's very, um, it's a, it's a, it's a virtuous circle because as you see more and more, you know what's going on in the market and you have a more informed view of what's out there. Plus, obviously, your domain expertise is just that much stronger. So, you know, I, I felt that if I did this pure play fund of funds focused on seed venture firms, um, that I would have access to the, the sort of that current generation of top tier firms, as well as the, uh, uh, well, you know, the pick of the next ones coming out. Right. So you, um, so who did you, who, who were, who was like, tell us about your first pitch? Well, so, you know, it was, even if it, it was a tough slog, quite frankly. And, you know, uh, the, and that's just because historically people are just so used to the top 10 
firms who've been around forever uh, yeah. generating all the returns. It, it's, that, it's that super, super narrow Venn diagram. You know, we don't want alternatives. We don't want anything illiquid. We don't like single GPs, which is what I was. Mm. We don't like fund of funds because you have stacked fees, right? Our RLPs pay the underlying portfolio funds, um, exp- you know, fees and carry as well as our fee and carry. So they're actually, you know, there's it's, it's known as the stacked uh, right. uh, fee structure. And, you know, based on that, there weren't that many LPs that were interested in what we were doing. Um, so I believe that the seed thesis outside of those other structural concerns? No, for the most part, right. uh, it was so early on that, you know, if they, if the most sophisticated LPs that I talked to, they were probably typically in, in the Sequoias, Axels, mm-hmm. Benchmarks, Greylocks of the world. And so they didn't feel a need to add to it. Now, there were other groups that had only been focused on second or third tier Sand Hill Road firms because they couldn't get into that top tier. And they were just happy with what that was. And they also didn't understand venture. And they thought if you had some exposure to Sandhill, then it would be a great, you know, they did their job. Again, the problem with the institutional LP world is that they are not compensated the right way. There's no upside for them typically. Right. And so they revert to that. You don't get fired for buying IBM. And they right. just take the, the, least, the path of least resistance. Right. Just, just say no. Right. Um, did you get pushback from some of these LPs thinking that, you know, hey, if there's some, if we're in Sequoia and there's some new seed fund, then we'll just talk to the seed fund. Yeah. You know, so when I started this, most LPs that I talked to weren't aware that seed funds it could even be exists. even institutional. Right. They thought they were just, you know, super angels like Jeff right. Clavier or just ex-Facebook engineers with the, a few million in their pocket to burn. Um you know the uh, the the real the real break that I got was that I started talking to a family office outside uh, Philadelphia, and I had never met them before. I did probably twenty calls with them. I pitched them on the idea. They liked it, and they decided to warehouse me. And so by the- so what is, what does that mean? Just take a step back, because I imagine some of the people listening sure. to this won't won't understand what that means. So they said, okay, we like your idea. Yeah. We will com- we will enable you to make $20 million of commitments to these funds so you can get your portfolio going. And in return, we want certain part of your carry. Okay. And we also want to be um, able to invest in your funds on a, you know, a disc- at a discount. Okay, so that would be the equivalent, I guess, would be uh, an LP going to a VC and saying, hey, we're going to basically get you going and we're going to invest in your deals and we're going to split the carry in some way right. in, in exchange. Exactly. And what that, why that was transformative was because I went from a PowerPoint to something real. Right. And once you have real commitments made, and our first commitment was to IA Ventures, thank God, right. they're doing super well. Right. Um, that's also another touch point which a potential LP could use as a diligence reference on us. And so, you know, we were able to make, I think, three or four uh, commitments to seed funds, including IA Ventures, including Freestyle, Pivot North, and SoftTech, you know, Jeff Clavier's right. fund. And, you know, that enabled uh, potential LPs for us to be able to go talk to those fund managers and say, well, you know, why are you working with Sendana? Right. So that what really. Was, what was the answer? Michael was a former GP. He understands venture extremely well. He knows why this is the great opportunity. Not many institutional LPs have even recognized that this is an opportunity. What what about that family office in Philadelphia? Do you think clicked? Whereas some of some of the others had right. they had they, inv- had they invested in venture before? No. no. So this is a funny so that's thing. Interesting because <laughs> one, one of the biggest indicators for us in when we're when we've pitched someone is if they say they've never invested in a venture fund before, the chances of them deciding to invest in a first time fund with first time managers, you know, that's one of the biggest indicators for us early on that this is not this is not going to work out. Right. right. Well, you know, I want to say it was my winning smile, but you know, quite frankly, I didn't meet them in person until we were ready to sign the deal. And so, like I was saying, I think I did probably 20 conference calls with them, sold them on the idea. They did enough reference checks on me that they felt 
that I was a legitimate person. And the first time I met with them is when I went and flew out to Philadelphia to go sign the deal. Um, we figure we should meet before we actually sign anything. Yeah, yeah. And you know, so that you know, they their background actually was more real estate and structured credit, and so um, they thought this is supposition. But I, I think that they liked the fact that they were going to get some equity kicker in the form of that carry, and also the fact that they were getting um, a pretty fully baked. Um, you know, effectively a loan because they would cover the capital calls with interest expense. And then once I started my fund and got going, you know, we would take that back and we would repay them not only the capital calls they made, but also the, the interest. So I think they viewed it more as like a, a, a safe, you know, 10, 15% kind of interest opportunity plus the equity kicker from the carry. Mm. And maybe it's just, you know, fortuitous or very lucky that I was able to work with them. Um, I was introduced to them by a good friend of mine who worked at a venture debt fund. So, mm. um, but, you know, in general, 99% of the people I talked to said, no way. Right. And the other major break that I got was um, a portfolio CEO of ours when I was at Rustic introduced me to the University of Texas. And so currently the University of Texas, um, their endowment is our largest LP Um you know, the and they're a prolific investor yeah. in in venture as an asset class. Yes, right. uh, they're thirty five billion dollars, so they have to write right. big checks. And you know, it's well known and publicly disclosed that they're an LP, an LP in say groups like Union Square and, yep. and Foundry. Um, and you know, their problem was not so much that they didn't know about seed; they actually actively wanted seed fund exposure, but they were too big. Their minimum check is, you know, tens of millions, right? 30, 40, 50 million dollars. Ideally, 100 million plus. Um, obviously, you can't write those kind of checks to these small seed funds. So we were able to structure a deal where we represented them. They committed capital to a managed account um, where they are the only LP. I am the GP and um, they're on the investment committee and they give thumbs up or down on, on opportunities we show them. So you, so you basically effectively allow them to write a, a lot more smaller checks and get access to uh, a much wider, broader group of, of very early stage VCs than they would typically well, be yeah. doing the work for. So it was publicly disclosed that they have 100 million with us. So they were able to write the check size they needed to mm, right. from their point of view. Right. And then I take that 100 and invest it in, in pro rata along our funds into these seed funds. Right. Um, but again, that was a po- the, the the story there is I did multiple calls with them, probably um, I wouldn't say 20, but you know, maybe uh, once a quarter for about a year. And then, you know, I met with them in um, in Palo Alto actually. Um, and then radio silence for another quarter or two and then out of the blue mm. I get an email saying, "Hey, we're, we want to invest with you." Right. So that was a happy day. So that's encouraging as we hear from <laughs> founders. We've been founders ourselves. We've been VCs raising funds ourselves. And so it's encouraging to hear uh, a couple of stories, I guess, from the, from the LP community that <laughs> well, it's not all, yeah. that it's not, uh, it's, it can be tougher to raise capital. It can be very tough. And, you know, I think one of the recommendations we always make to fund managers that we don't commit to um, is to stay in touch with us, to give us, you know, maybe quarterly updates try to stay in their, on their radar and obviously not be stalking them or, or harassing them, but, you know, in, a, in, in an appropriate way, um, maintain contact with them because something may, something, you know, the circumstances may change and, um, you know, the, you may be able to get something out of them for your next fund. So you're, um, you're an investor in obviously a lot of great seed funds now. Um, since freestyle and soft tech and IA, what are what are some of the more recent funds you invested in? Yeah, I, I mean, just just in the past year, you know, we invested in um, collaborative fund in New York, for example. Um, again, it's a group that we had started talking to in 2011 um, mm-hmm. when they were finishing up their first fund, but we always stayed in touch. We looked at it for fun, their fund too. Couldn't get to terms on that one. But ultimately, when Craig came back um, early last year and said, I'm raising Fund 3, you know, it was, again, the right time and place for it. And so we, I think, are the second or third largest LP in that one. Um, when you think about um, 
when you think about investing in a, in a VC firm and VC managers, um, what are a couple of the things that you look yeah. for that get you particularly excited? Like, what was it about, let's say, Collaborative Fund that after three, four years staying in close touch, what were the things that you're like, holy shit, I, I have to work with these folks? Yeah. Well, you know, so basically, um, we have three primary filters and you know, we've we've talked to probably seven hundred groups worldwide, and you, you know, only invest in, in in the U.S. Right now, we've only invested in the U.S., but we we you know are looking at groups outside the U.S. Um, but you know, and I can talk a little bit more about this. Um, but our first filter is portfolio construction, and we are specifically looking for groups that can lead their deals. And the reason why we 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 feel that's so important is because. Ownership really matters at the seed stage because number one, seed funds don't have enough capital to be able to be a life cycle investor and maintain their ownership or buy up their ownership um, in companies that are doing extremely well. So it's important for them to get um, a relatively high ownership at the beginning. And you know, a simple example is you know most M and A for private companies is between fifty to hundred million. So let's say hundred million. You own one percent of that, you get a million back on your investment. Could be the, a great multiple, but a million is not going to move the dial on your fund. Um, for a typical seed fund, that's fifty to hundred million dollars. Yeah, right. Uh, exactly. And you know, if you had a forty million dollar fund and you own fifteen percent of that company at hundred million, fifteen million returns a meaningful part of your fund. Um, so you know, that's why we think ownership is important, which means you have to be able to lead your deals. And the intangible around that is that um, you know the GPs have to have that credibility to work with the entrepreneurs, whether it's their operating experience, whether it's their technology experience um, it, or technical skill. And you know, if you're an entrepreneur, why are you going to work with this GP versus that other GP? And having that credibility of um, being able to actually add value instead of just saying that in a blog post. I think it's super important. And that's something very hard to titrate um, in, in, in our diligence, um, in yeah, any you, diligence. For, for the record, for folks that are listening, uh, and we've been over this a couple of times, but GP functionally equivalent to VC. Yeah, same the general uh, partner of a fund. Yes. Yeah. Um, so how do, you, how, do you, uh, how do you uncover that? How do you uncover whether or not a VC can both you know, win the deal and and lead it in a meaningful yeah. way so that they get the ownership that they need to move yeah. the needle. I, there's, I can give you a couple of examples of that. So we invest in first-time funds. And so in the case of, say, Freestyle, Josh and Dave had made a number of investments on using their own capital. And so we called every single one of those portfolio CEOs and asked them, if Josh and Dave actually had a $40 million fund, would you have let them lead the deal? And you know the answer came back typically yes. They are a most active investor. They and you know. So let me ask you a question about that because I always think about that. What what founder that's currently working with an investor or VC would say no? Those guys suck. I've had people say that. To you me. really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so you know. So you were just like con- consistent feedback that they would love for them if they had a fund. Yeah. To leave Even if, and you believe and you believed it. Yes. And and, it was, and it's okay if there's an outlier saying you know they're they're okay, but you know. Steve Anderson is my go-to guy. Right, right. That's fine, but um, you know, as again, these guys are raising their first institutional fund. It's good to hear from portfolio CEOs that yes, had they had a forty million dollar fund, they, they could have easily led the deal. Um, you know, Kirsten Green, she had a portfolio of of her seed investments like Warby Parker, and when we talked to Warby, the Warby Parker founders, they're like, yes, Kirsten's great. We loved her, or we love her, and she could have easily led our deal had she had a fund. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important to hear that feedback from the, i.e. the, you know, the customers, right? They're saying, yes, these guys have the credibility to do a deal. The, uh, so So that was number one, number one, number one, leading a deal, high ownership and credibility amongst, amongst founders to, uh, to want to, to want to. And our job is to figure out, you know, how real that is. So that's Um, three and number one. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and then number two. (laughs) Our second filter is ecosystem. So for us, that's three vectors, high quality entrepreneurs, high quality co-investors, and a ton of follow-on capital. So you could be the go-to seed fund in Istanbul and have the best deal flow there and be the smartest guys. 
you know, they're relying for their subsequent rounds from the, the VCs in London and Berlin to fly in or the Sandhill Road or New York crowd to fly in. And that's no way to live with early stage. So, you know, taking it home, you know, if you're the go-to seed fund in, in Cleveland, I think it's a, it's a tougher slog. And so historically, our portfolio is basically based in Bay Area and New York. Yep. How about Boston and Austin and some, some other ecosystems? So counterintuitively, we think Boston is not a good seed ecosystem. Mm. You know, counterintuitive so because bonds based there. Yeah. So let me talk about that. They, you know, you have groups like, you know, well, I guess historically Greylock, but they moved. But you know, Matrix, Northbridge, Northbridge is no longer uh, raising a new fund. Um, Highland, Charles River, you know, great firms historically. General Catalyst, and then the newer ones like General Catalyst and Spark. So those guys are focused more on New York. In the Bay Area, the the older VC firms in Boston again are focused more on the Bay Area. I'd say, um, and so it's it's actually a t- it's not the it's not it's not it's not the Bay Area. And the other issue about Boston is that historically, you know, much of the venture alpha came came from data data com, uh, data networking, optical, you know, hard technologies that came out of. Um, you know, places like MIT Lincoln Labs. Yep. And so they don't have that sort of ecosystem of companies that are probably more, where employees and entrepreneurs have more of that experience around what can be viably funded at, with, a, with a seed financing approach. Yep. So you actually see the entrepreneurs in Boston who are the seasoned entrepreneurs going out and raising five to 10 million as their first round as opposed to doing a seed round. Yep, yep. Um, Number two, number three, number three is sort of our catch-all. It's intangibles, and so for us, that's you know, do we think these guys have hustle? Do, are they in it for the right reasons? Do they want to do this for the rest of their lives? I've actually had a, uh, a GP tell me that it was a one and done kind of fun. They only wanted to do one of these things. Um, and know, so, just to explain that a little bit, I mean, your the idea is that over time you could work with and invest in a VC across. 10 funds over decades. And that's, and that's the idea. Yeah. So it's much less attractive for you to write a check and have that be done. Well, why, why is that? Well, because we spend so much time uh, up front right. and doing that work, you know, diligence. Typically we do 30 to 40 calls. We spend a lot of, a lot of time with our um, GPs. And so, you know, it's, it's just unfortunate if it doesn't work out and, you know, they only do one fund or actually more relevant to, to our portfolio if they decide to migrate upwards and become a series A fund, because we actually don't do those. And uh-huh. we've had to um, not, not go forward with a, a couple of our fund managers because of that. Now, that said, most of our fund managers are true believers in the seed fund approach. And so they want to stay under $100 million. They want to do, um, they'd rather raise a um, $100 million fund every two to three years than raise a $400 million or $300 million fund every five years for example. Right. So that actually brings me to one of our other questions. I mean, aside from the fact that a seed fund might migrate up the stack to series A or series B, and we are, we are seeing more of that. Um, what are some other reasons that you wouldn't back a current uh, VC or GP after having funded them through their first or second fund? Yeah. Well, so, so that's one reason, which is we, we know from the get go and the GPs being forthright saying, you know, this will be a $40 million fund. Our next one's going to be 100 Our next one is going to be 250 The next one is going to be 500 That's just not the right fit for us. Um, another is certainly, you know, do we actually think these, the GPs have a discernible edge? You know, so like Kirsten Green, you know, expert at digital commerce. People want to work with her. She's very nice. She has great domain expertise. We know she has a discernible edge in digital commerce. Um you know, so, it, or, you know, the IA venture guys, they are very sharp at what they do, big data and analytics. People want to work with them. So, you know, I, I, those, it's, it's getting a sense of deal flow, their networks. We try to get a sense of like, well, you know, does that person, ha- people talk about the PayPal mafia, you know, there's other mafias now, obviously. Right. And we want to get a sense of who knows. We, we, we actually try to map out, at least in our heads, the, the, the different um, networks and that what that landscape looks like and whether that actually creates um, unique deal flow for that for that fund manager. How much are you looking at performance or 
realized exits when you're investing in a very early fund. Let's say it's maybe not necessarily fund one, but maybe fund two. Yeah, what one? I think one handy way of looking at the different funds is, is it's almost akin to a seed round, a Series A and a Series B. So fund one, it's very hard to do. Seed rounds relatively hard to do, but you can do it. Fund two or a Series A. Your people are still investing in it on the promise or the hope or the dream. By the time you get to fund three, you got to have some real tangible exits, right? You got to, or me, tangible metrics, right? If you're a company. And so there's a parallel between the funds one, two, three and the rounds seed series A and B. And so the problem is that it gets a lot harder and it has been a lot harder where these fund managers are raising their funds every two years. Right. And so you don't have that. By the time fund three comes about, a ton of exits, and because it's just such a, t- a compressed time period. And oh, by the way, their best companies probably raised a couple hundred million now, right? On paper, it looks good, but there's no distribution, right? So you know, it is very hard to to tell how ultimately a fund manager will do because you know um, markups, you know, uh, are markups, right. and as Duvos always talks about, it's it's about having the moolah and the kula. That's right. We heard that. We heard that a couple of times in the yeah. last. And I think uh, I think you know, in the last twelve months, it's become a lot more clear to both LPs and GPs that having some cash distributions is very important. So, you know, we can talk about this, but at the high level, we've been telling our fund managers that if they have a ten x position, you know, where the ten x kind of multiple on their right. in their initial investment, that they should consider monetizing part of that. Right. And you know, and I that means and that means selling shares into a, an additional yeah round exactly. So if there's a, a a new round that's being put together, maybe sell some shares into that. Um, or you know, certainly uh, there's been a proliferation of secondary funds. And how do the how do the VCs um, how do the VCs approach that with a with a founder? Or how do you recommend that they approach that? Yeah. So the, the the pushback I get always is, well, if we sell our shares. Right. It's going to jeopardize a relationship right. with the entrepreneur. Um, the other thing we we hear is if we sell our shares, it's going to be a negative signal mm-hmm. to right. the market. So you know it would be. An, I, I don't believe the negative signal because you know if you're Sequoia, you own twenty five percent of the company, and you're going to sell off half your shares, that's a signal, right? Right. But if you're you know one of our portfolio funds, you know barely on the cap table, but a valuable position, selling off 20 percent of that position. No one's going to blink an eye, right? And relationship-wise, that'll typically represent what a, a point maybe of the company or a maybe. couple points, right? Yeah, right, right, right. So you can get meaningful distributions even if you just sell off ten to twenty percent of these positions. And you know the relationship angle, that's harder to 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 figure out. Um, maybe they're right; they would probably know best. But you know, I would think that if you have a, a good, you know, sound relationship with a person, they're not going to you know cut you off out of their lives just because you sold some shares. And it's not like you're selling your entire position. You're still, you know, eighty percent of your. Uh, you still have about eighty percent in, in there. Yeah. Why, why do you think we're seeing these companies stay private for so much longer? I mean, we hear this. We hear this a lot in the market from from investors and, and LPs about you know frustration about delayed liquidity and and some of these companies. Yeah. I mean, clearly, Facebook and that dynamic w- w- has been a very strong influence where they stayed private for longer. Um, I think, you know, the typical reasons people want to go public is, you know, investors want some some liquidity. Um, the company actually has some currency that they can now use, i.e. Right. their public stock to make acquisitions, you know, all those traditional reasons. But the downside of being public is that you're under major scrutiny and you miss one earnings announcement or even be perceived as missing an earnings right. announcement. Or even hitting your earnings, blowing out your earnings announcement, but offering weaker guidance in the future, you can lose half your value. And so, I can see why. Where if there's an active secondary market, like for example, SpaceX publicly reported that they have a regular program where they're actually buying back shares for their employees, and I think that is something that can keep SpaceX private. And you know, maybe it's a unique company in a unique space. Um, no pun intended, but. Um, you know, I, I think that because those kind of instruments and dynamics are available, um, companies can stay private longer. Now, the cynical view is, you know, you take a company like 
um, say Dropbox and you know not knowing their their exact financials, you can see where Box trades in the public market. You know, Box or Dropbox raised at a ten billion dollar valuation. There is some um, differences there uh, if you were to apply public uh, market comparables, right? And so I think there are public, uh, there are p- private companies that are highly valued that may not earn the same kind of valuation in the in the public markets. And, you know, VCs, the employees, the management team, they don't want to go through that brain damage of actually going public and then having their valuations lowered. I mean, Square is the company that took a lot of heat for their, you know, $6 billion plus private market valuation. Now, you know, went public at substantially lower, but they've maintained their value, if not increased it to some yep. extent. And, you know, I think uh, ultimately, if you can provide liquidity to your employees to your uh, the management team and to your investors, it will prolong the the length of companies staying private because people see in a very tangible way what happens if you're public and you miss the earnings announcement. Yep. Which new uh, which new funds that you aren't an investor in um, excite you today? That's a good question. Um, well, you know, which, so which like let's say which. Very, very early stage funds just getting going. Are you most intrigued by and, and doing the work and would love to be an investor in one day? Potentially. Yeah. You know, there's these two guys in New York that do precede. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard of them. <laughs> heard of yeah. Um, no, but, you know, I, I think now that there are, you know, these 250 to 300 seed funds in the US. And by the way, I think at least half of them are probably sub 15 million, just friends and family kind of things. Um, Not you guys, because you're doing pre-seed, which is a smaller, you don't need as much capital. But I do think there are, are, it's a lot easier for an ex-Facebook engineer to go out there with a few million in his pocket and get a a few of his friends and suddenly he's a seed fund, right? right? There's all these, we keep hearing about all these YC funds popping up that are very small. I mean, I, I do think that ultimately there are probably somewhere between 10 to 15 high-quality seed funds, institutional-quality seed funds, and maybe one or two ultimately will become over multiple generations of partners like Sequoia or Excel or, you know, not in that size, but that, that quality. Um, so, you know, I feel that our portfolio is pretty strong. Um, there aren't, I would, I, w- I would say right now that there aren't any funds that we feel like we missed but I will also be the first to say that we did not get into Floodgate or Baseline or Harrison Metal because we were too late. They're high-quality firms, and their LPs, um, you know, they're not adding in new LPs. Right, right. So we keep, we keep consistently hearing amongst lots of folks in the LP community that they've made a lot of commitments over the last, call it, five, seven years. Uh, a lot of their funds are coming back to market and raising every two years rather than every four years. So, you know, are you, are you in a spot now where you feel like you're kind of happy with most of the funds that you're invested in and you're happy to continue to work with them over the next five, 10, however many years it is, and are less actively looking at new things? Like it seems like some of the rest of the LP community. We, so, and I didn't answer your question fully, but I would say that, you know, there are areas where we don't have exposure that I think could be important. Um, you know, so for example, we don't have a dedicated or thematic digital health fund. Um, so that could be interesting. Um, we don't have a dedicated, you know, thematic fintech fund. Um, you know, we did make two small investments, um, into companies or into funds that are focused on capital efficient hardware. Um, the question out there still remains whether seed is the right entry point for a hardware company. Um, we did make a small commitment to um, you know a fund that uh, that's affiliated with AngelList called Maiden Lane, yep. and the idea there was we would get to see who bubbled up in terms of the the best syndicates, the most active syndicates, almost like a farm farm team of you know are these people who can ultimately go out and raise their own funds. Yep. Um, so you know I didn't talk about that much, but we do have this pilot program where we would commit up to a million dollars to keep an eye out on. Um, on different groups. And, you know, just so that everyone has the context, our typical commitments average seven and a half to 10 million. And, you know, much like we want a concentrated portfolio from our fund manager, you know, let's say 
a fund manager has a $40 million fund, they would probably have 20 to 24 core positions. Yep. So for us, our fund of funds typically have 10 to 12 fund commitments in there. And we are it's a high conviction investment yep. approach where we are, much as I talk about high ownership, we are among the top three largest LPs in each of our funds except for those pilot ones. That and then you have some pilot funds around that that right, might to keep an eye on. kind of experiment right. and build a relationship with new. And they could easily migrate to being a core commitment for us. So, you know, we made a small commitment to Mucker in LA. Um, we had serious questions about LA as an ecosystem, uh, largely because there aren't that many um, local larger VCs other than Upfront and maybe Graycroft. Um, but, you know, we got comfortable that uh, the, the, the Bay Area firms were very active down there. And it, it, it actually is not only that, it's also that, you know, that there were enough executive talent and people to take a company beyond $100 million. And so, you know, if you think about enterprise companies in L.A., Cornerstone On Demand was sort of like the, the first major one that was started down there. Um, you know, Salesforce, Oracle, all these guys up here, um, have no problem finding people to build out their teams. But if you're an enterprise software company in LA, it's not as easy just because there aren't that many local companies right. there. So, But we ultimately got comfortable and then we made um, what we call a core commitment to Mucker's new fund. Got so, it. you know, pilots do migrate up right. to core. Right. So change directions just a bit. Um, part of the reason we're doing this podcast is to try to shed a little bit of light and transparency on the LP ecosystem. Um you, from what I can tell, have been probably much more public um, than the average LP. Like you're active on Twitter. Sandana seems to be very approachable through a lot of the uh, GPs and other funds that you work with. Was that uh, was that a conscious decision when you started Sandana Capital? Is that just an extension of who you are and you can't yeah. help it, or or um, something else? Well, I think it's, I mean, intrinsically, that's, I, I, I believe myself to be a pretty transparent, open, a straightforward person. But specifically to Sandana, when we did our first annual meeting, you know, as part of that deal, we, in the afternoon, had an LPGP summit. And, you know, we thought that it was very important, especially back then, to evangelize why seed is such an attractive area. So, Number one, for our annual meeting, we would invite non-Sendana LPs to come in and sit right. through us. And we're talking about, you know, specific performance numbers and all that, but we're very proud of our results. And so, you know, I had no issue inviting LPs who weren't part of our funds. Right. So, number one, so that they can get a sense right. of, like, why it's attractive. And then number two, for these LPGP summits that we have in the afternoon, you know, it's a broader audience of uh, GPs that we haven't invested in or even turned down and as well as a wider group of LPs. And it was really just, um, to be honest, uh, more of an educational mission so that people understood why it's an attractive space and also to get the LPs and GPs in the mix. And, you know, I know that um, a number of our portfolio funds met some of their, uh, you know, some LPs through those events. And so, you know, we're very open about what we do and we actively foster relationships that way. Yeah, we were. So we were at the conference this year. And um, yeah, we walked away remarking that it was one of the few places where it feels like all of the LPs and a lot of the, um, most of the even established GPs and also very, very new GPs um, could share a room. It was a really, it was a really nice event. Thanks. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the equivalent would be five or six years ago at VC inviting all their competitors in the room, right? To look at all the companies that they're working with or potentially working with. So at the time, did it feel, uh, did it feel awkward like five or six years ago when you started to know all the LPs and GPs in the room or people were people asking why the hell you were doing that in the first place? Yeah. And you know, part of it was to be it was, it's more so back then it was very selfish. We actually wanted to um, educate the potential LPs who would hopefully come into our funds on why this was attractive. Right. So that's part of it was marketing to uh, LPs uh, that we wanted involved with us. Um, it's less so that way today, but um, I, you know, it, it, you know, the various fund GPs at fund of funds, you know, we invite, we're happy to have them uh, in the room where we talk about our strategy and our performance because, 
you know, at the end of the day, I think um, uh, seed VC funds want to work with us, and there's always enough room that uh, I think that um, you know that that if 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 we were, I don't think we're going to get elbowed out of a commitment. Or I don't think we would be um, have our I don't think our we would have our allocation reduced in size because right. you know we brought in someone and quite frankly it's the opposite effect if if we're working with a seed fund and they want to slightly expand their LP base you know we work with them on who to who we make introductions to LPs we help them come on board and so um, I think GPs appreciate that help uh, that value add that an LP like us can do. Are you just as excited about the next five to ten years as the previous five? Yes. Even though I think we're going to probably head into a, 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 a economic downturn, I think um, relative to being a late stage investor, I think seed is where to, is is the place to be. And there's always something exciting going on. You know, you're asking about new funds that we look at. You know, I'd say in the last six months we've seen probably ten different AR VR funds, for example. Right. Or you know maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago we were seeing like maybe 10, 15 blockchain centric funds. Um, so you know there's always something new going on, um, and is being an entrepreneur and having that uh, you know the next big thing. I think that dynamic is is always going to be there, yep. and it's just great to be able to see and support that ecosystem. Michael, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll have to get you back on for uh, for season two uh, <laughs> next Happy to year. So. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot. so much. All right. For yep. sure. You can find Michael Kim and Sandana Capital on Twitter at MK Rocks and at Sandana Capital. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or on AngelList. We'd like to thank our friend Sapphire Ventures for sponsoring this debut series. Sapphire Ventures is a global venture capital firm that invests in growth stage technology companies as well as early stage venture firms across the technology landscape. Sapphire Ventures shares our desire to bring transparency and candor to the venture ecosystem. We're very grateful to be collaborating with them on this project. We'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Finally, we'd also like to thank our friends at Mattermark who are helping us with distribution and making an amazing product. You should try it, mattermark.com.